Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one in our series of financial well-being podcasts. I'm here with uh, producer Tomo and Chris Budd. Tomo, you can go first. Tell us a bit about yourself today. Rightly first. Rightly first. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I will... do it better than that then. Oh. Come on. <laughs> You've been given your big moment. You can't. I'm in R. Tammy, where are you? <laughs> what, what happens in my life that's interesting to share? Yeah, OK. So I'm Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I have just come off or come back from, and we all have, the Financial Wellbeing Conference, which was a lot of fun. Oh, no, hi. Buzzing, fun. mate. Buzzing. Absolutely it was, buzzing. It was a fab day, actually. Really, really good. Really, I thought really you were good. particularly good, David. Well, I always am. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great to see all those people gather together and to actually put a few faces to a few names as well. Yeah, people yeah. that have contacted us uh, on social media, you know, had some nice chats with some people. Really, really good day. But we mustn't talk too much about that because obviously that in itself will will be one of our future podcasts. Yeah. It will, which is, which is going to be... Super exciting. What I loved about it is genuinely the objective of the conference was to have financial advisors to give them or financial planners because that's what the good guys are called in our profession. Semantics, <laughs> um, but sure. Yeah, yeah, it matters a lot to us, doesn't it? Yeah. Nobody else, but it looks to us. <laughs> we wanted to give them tools to go away to help them to help their clients to become happier, not just wealthier. Our catchphrase, and I think we genuinely did that. We gave them a whole lot of tools. The talk about anxiety from Nick Elston was really moving. The, the Paddy Brown from Catherine Solomon are fascinating stuff. So, yeah, hopefully there will be lots of clients who will now be getting a slightly different focus from their financial advisor. Brilliant. As I say, look forward to one of our future podcasts, mm. which will be based around the chat that we had at the end of that very interesting session. I've got a bit of news, actually. Ooh. So about a year ago, I was approached by a theatre director, a friend of mine, saying, oh, do you know what? There's this play I really want to do. And there'd be part in it just perfect for you, three-hander. And I won't say the name because it's nothing's actually confirmed yet. And I read it and I thought, oh, I would love to play that part. Now, I haven't acted on stage since 2000. And it's the one thing that I really, really miss. Absolutely love the theatre. So I read this play, got all excited, incredibly enthused. And I said, oh, I'll do that in a heartbeat. So he said, great, great, great. I'm talking to another couple of people. I need to find a venue. We've got to put a little tour together if we can. So I said, fine, you get back to me. And, and then gradually what happened over the next few months is, oh, he said, I, I was hoping that venue might come off. And I put him in touch with a couple of people, but nothing transpired. And in the end, about six months ago, he said, he said, Dave, I'm really sorry, but it looks like we're not going to be able to do this now. I just can't get anybody interested in it. Can't raise the money and all of that. So regrettably, I waved goodbye to an opportunity to tread the boards again, playing a really, really good part. Anyway, lo and behold, a couple of weeks ago, He's back in touch with me saying, it's back on. Fantastic. And he's found a venue. Uh, Are you able to give us any details at this uh, point? No, not at this stage okay. because nothing is actually confirmed. We're still talking to one or two other people. But the hope is that we're going to be doing it for a week in Bristol next February, I think. And then a little tour around the uh, around the southwest. How as exciting! Well. So I am... make sure you give us all our details because if we get all of the listeners to the financial wellbeing podcast, you could sell a couple more tickets easily. <laughs> yeah, so that's great because because the one thing I used to do a lot of acting, and uh, the one thing that I have to say I miss of all the things that I don't do anymore that I used to do is the theatre acting on stage. So brilliant! An yes. opportunity to that's do exciting. this could be just great. And we've talked in previous podcasts about. You know, finding things as you approach a, perhaps a stage in your life where you're less reliant on going out and earning money and you pick and choose the projects that you want to do. 
And this absolutely is one. There won't be much money in it at all, but it's absolutely a project that I cannot wait to do. So if it comes off. Producers, listen to this carefully. Experienced actor David Lloyd available for not much money. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so what are we doing today, Chris? Uh, Today, David, we are going to listen to a chat, an interview I did with Jason Butler. Now, Jason is a financial planner, um, quite well known in the industry, does a lot of talks, a lot of conferences, very, very experienced guy, written several books. We'll hear what he's got to say, his thoughts on financial planning. He's got some really interesting things to say. Excellent. Before we come on to that, any questions, Tomo, that have been sent into Ovation for this week? Yeah, I had one the other day trying to explain to someone the different types of investing. She was like, what's the difference between buying shares and buying a fund? I thought this was quite relevant. It comes up quite often when I come across someone who's got a share portfolio. And what that is, is a portfolio that you have individual shares that you buy, your BTs, your Amazons or companies. And what it tends to be is quite concentrated in the UK. It's just habit, might have inherited it from a family member. That individual shareholdings has quite a bit of risk to it because ultimately we saw with Debenhams recently, that went pop. You're quite undiversified. It's quite difficult to keep on top of those companies and know what they're doing, what they're likely to do going forward. So we at Ovation focus on funds. And basically in there, you get to put your money in with lots of other people. So you get economies of scale. You might be in a fund that's worth billions. And they're able to invest in lots of companies for you. And instead of having a portfolio of, say, 15 shares, you might have one fund that invests in 50 shares or 50, let's call it UK companies. You might have another fund that invests in another 50 US companies. So you can really spread your risk by using funds because it pulls lots of other people's money together. So yeah, that comes up quite often, the difference between holding direct shares to holding funds. And we prefer funds at Ovation. Well, certainly my experience of the variety of funds in which my money is invested has been that that's been a very lucrative way to go for me over the years so get um, some of the gains but try and spread it out and reduce some of the risks yeah. that come along so moving on again to our other uh, regular feature the legend that is Titus tomo now we're going to hear his input on two great money saving techniques chris have you got one today before i we have that? i have I, so something that bugs me is when you go on a flight and you aren't allowed to take a liquid through security now, that doesn't bug me. That's fair enough. I, I don't understand it, but I'm sure there are very good reasons why you do that. But you then have to buy significantly overpriced water on the other side. And I discovered recently that the rule is that you can't take water through, but you can take a water bottle through and then pop in the loose and fill it up. So the, I don't know what they're made of, actually, metal of some description, the, the, the kind of non-disposable water bottle that you take around with you these days is becoming a far more common way of doing things. So an empty one of those, I've checked with the CAA website, the Civil Aviation Authority, and yet they've confirmed that water bottles are allowed to be carried through. So save yourself money on buying, and, and of course the environment, on buying water in a plastic bottle in the airport. That's a really good tip. Absolutely, that is a win-win situation. Tomo, give us your money-saving tip. Kind of on a theme for what you two are talking about. I came across a trial that Lidl were carrying out. It started in August and was going on for six months. And I believe that it was that successful that they're looking to roll it out. So keep your eyes, eyes peeled for this. And they basically, you know, all those vegetables that supermarkets won't sell because they look a bit wonky or they don't, they damaged, but they're perfectly good. You know, they just don't look right. So people won't buy them for whatever reason. They've actually created these veg boxes for £1.50 
with five kilograms worth of different vegetables. So I thought, good on them, I thought. Ugly vegetables. Ugly vegetables, yeah. yeah, good on them. And, and the trial was really successful. It's reducing our food waste and also saving you money on your uh, weekly food budget. Yeah. yeah. Well, this whole notion that carrots have to be shiny and washed That's and everything. Really cool. You know, I go to my local greengrocers to buy my veg now. And the carrots, they're loose. And I won't put them in a bag. I'll pick them up and get a handful and put them in my basket. Unless they've got a paper bag, I won't take a plastic bag to put stuff in. It's all about changing our habits, isn't it? And changing how we do things. Anyway, enough of that. I'm sure people at home will want to know more about uh, financial well-being. So, Chris, how about setting up today's interview? So, Jason Butler was a financial advisor who sold his business a few years ago. He has written several books, including Squeezing the Orange and Money Moments. He also writes a regular comment for the Financial Times and is head of financial education at the Workplace Lender Salary Finance. He's massively experienced and has got lots to say about financial well-being. So let's have a listen to my chat with Jason Butler. Jason, thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. No, thanks for asking me, Chris. I've been a big fan of the Wellbeing Podcast and I love what you're doing on it and I listen to all of them, you know, and there's a real mixture of speakers, some real eminent people, but, you know, you've got to bring it down a bit. So thanks for joining (laughs) me on it. (laughs) So listen, let's get straight into it. You, as I have just uh, introduced you on the podcast to our listeners, I've been in financial planning for a long, long time, but you sold your business at a relatively young age, I would suggest, of 46. What were the circumstances that made you decide to sell your business? Well, I I had for a couple of years before, two or three years before, becoming increasingly sort of unhappy with working in that business. There's a whole host of reasons, but the central one was that it was a boutique looking after 65 very wealthy, complicated families. And whilst it gave us all a great living, there gets a point when if you've paid your mortgage off and you've built some capital and you're starting to get ahead in life, that you want a bit more than just paying the bills. And just making a small amount of very nice, rich people richer, wasn't really moving it for me and I hadn't really realized that and so I got to a stage when what actually threw me over the edge really was I had a client who was worth about 25 26 million he dropped dead at the age of I think it was 46 when he came out of the gym Um, he hadn't worked for five years and although he did have some sort of underlying health issue we didn't expect him to drop dead and he he died so it was when I was at his funeral I suddenly thought crikey you know um, look life's moving on that could be me and whilst I've always looked after myself physically and so on, I thought, well, if I keep on being unhappy with what I'm doing, that's going to affect my health, my physical health. So I thought, look, you know, I've got to get out of this business at some stage. But you know what it's like with financial planning. You've done this yourself with your own business. But you, you forge very strong relationships with clients, even if you're not doing all the work. And it's a very big emotional sort of wrench. You know, it's a bit like a sort of a, I suppose, a marriage that's not going right. You've got to bite the bullet and say, look, I can always go back into this if I want to but I will never be this age again. And that's a good takeaway for some of your listeners is that sometimes you don't always know exactly. And I didn't have a big plan. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go and how it was going to work out, but I had always optimism that something would come up and it didn't have to be all set down in complicated plans and goals and specific things have to be done by this day. So, you know, the complete opposite of smart, nothing was very clear, but it did take me nine to 10 months to organize my exit from the business. And there's a little takeaway. If you are someone in business, it always takes you longer and it always costs you more. Everything's just more than you think it is. The only thing we had in our business that we hadn't done and we were super organized was we just hadn't organized the exit kind of arrangements. 
so that if someone didn't want to work there or someone died or someone got ill, we hadn't, we hadn't nailed that bit. So that took longer than it would have otherwise taken. But yeah, so I, I left in 2015 and left it in the capable hands of my other two business partners. Luckily, I was in a situation where I didn't have to go and get a job straight away. So I sort of spent a, a year messing around, as it were. And I thoroughly recommend that to anyone who's been doing a job for a long period of time. Yeah, just a period of, of having nothing particularly to do. I know following Solo Ovation to Employee Ownership Trust, I, the phrase I've, I've used is I've got nothing to do and I've never been busier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing, you know, and there's a very important point that when you're being heavily scheduled, as I was, almost every minute of every day of my life was scheduled and it was no one's fault it was just obviously to make use of my time and to make sure that uh, that I was I was well deployed but that's from the business's point of view and what it does is it crowds out thinking time reflection time kind of just doing you know sitting playing the piano for three hours learning a new piece I mean we say we're going to do all those things but but it does crowd out that creativity and, and when you've got space to think and you can do a two hour workout rather than a one hour at the gym and things like that, you know, things come to you. Things came to me that I cannot begin to explain to you. Law of attraction, the law of the universe, whatever it is. And I gradually morphed into the financial wellbeing space, not for any particular reason other than I wanted to make a difference to lots of people's lives. I knew that the employee workspace kind of uh, market was where you could have biggest traction. I, I felt that. And this whole issue of people's mental health being affected by how they deal with money, I knew that was a fact. And I also knew it affected people who had money, high earners and people with wealth. It wasn't just people with low, low wealth and low income, although obviously they have normally more challenging situations. And, and of course, like you, Chris, I, I'd had worked out, I had done over 900 first client conversations in 25 years so that is a lot of people to hear their money story it doesn't mean that i knew all the answers or that i got on with everyone or everyone was was helpable but i did have a lot of conversations with people and you start to see certain patterns you start to see certain things and one of the things that really struck me and which is why i loved your tim Kasser interview because I, i've actually read his a couple of his books was People that validate themselves by their material possessions and how much money they've earned and, and the lifestyle they've got, they, they tend to be not as happy as people who have got a lower orientation. So when you had him on your show, and I, if you, anyone who's listening hasn't listened to that episode, I strongly recommend to go back and listen to it. It concurred with exactly what I thought. And also my own journey, this thing about um, you get successful, so therefore you end up lifestyle creep. You end up taking on more and more expenses because you think either subliminally that that's what you have to do or that's what society is, is encouraging you to do. Yeah, so I knew that, that financial well-being was actually like an onion. There were lots and lots of strands to it. Some of the clients that you used to deal with then, let's just go down that alley for a, a minute because it's quite interesting. You bring up the Tim Cassidy stuff. Did you find that these people, as they were taking your advice, uh, were they getting happier, less happy as a result of financial planning advice? How did you handle that? Uh, you know, it's a question, yes. If I think back to it, bear in mind, I've been out for three years, so I'm trying to think of the actual situations. But when you first took them on and you worked through the tea box or the shoe box or whatever it was of stuff, and you got them organized and you helped them understand what they could control, what they couldn't control and slim lined everything, streamlined it. There was that relief. When you take a, a mess off of them and help them get clarity, that is just immensely powerful. And, and we knew that we always delivered value there. But and then there was like a, after about three years, we noticed that clients 
and we, I obviously like you, I, I've gone through stock market crashes and interest rate rises and all sorts. And they almost sort of become very relaxed because we don't talk really about investments. That is what it is. We talk about what the family's doing, the housekeeping stuff we've got to sort out and bits and bobs, what the lawyer's got to do, stuff that they've got planned that's coming up. And when someone is starting to enjoy life and not worry about money, then that's, in a way, that's kind of, that's the value you're delivering. It's, it's, it's almost like every year was a quiet year and that was the way it should be because there's no big moving around and worrying about things. So, so yeah, they did get value. And, and, and let's face it, when you do a financial plan, it's just a guess of where you're going to go and what you've got and what you might do. But we were really focusing on the whole, the, the sort of process of discussing things with them and keeping things organized. It was never really an end date. You never finished a plan because it, it wasn't an end date as such. It was just making some decisions on a day-to-day -day and year-to-year basis about how you're going to deploy your capital and so on. And then the third thing I think we found is that families that started to feel comfortable we then started with the elder parents and down with the children. So we started widening it out, becoming truly intergenerational. And that's when it really started becoming interesting because families don't talk to each other about money. Yeah. Amen. I've got a daughter who's just turned 18 and she's just had the uh, savings plan that I set up when she was born come to her. And so for the first time ever, she's got a bit of real money to be deciding what to do with, you know. Right. And me talking about, well, maybe it's your, your first house in 10 years time. You know, what? <laughs> I've got a holiday to go on after my A-levels, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Those sorts of conversations. You need, you need help and understanding these things, don't you? Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, professional advisors, why I still have got a lot of time for proper financial planners is because they've seen this before many, many times. Uh, they know what clients are going through. They know about transitions. They know about the challenges. And the question is, every client's different, but advisors have seen it all before. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to, to what yeah. you did post your business then. And amongst other activities, you're head of financial education with salary finance. What does that role entail? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an interesting role. Um, salary finance started three years ago, essentially to provide employees with lower cost loans than they could get from credit cards, overdrafts, etc., and the standard high street sort of loans, or, or even dare I say, you know, payday loans and the more unscrupulous sort of part of the market that developed. Because basically their view was if they could deduct the repayments on a loan directly from someone's salary before they received it, then they're first in queue, aren't they? So therefore the cost and the risks to the organization, together with not having any distribution costs, because it's the employer that's making this available as part of a benefit package, meant that they could slash the cost. And the typical APR is sort of 7.95. Well, you compare the average credit card and bank loan and overdraft. I mean, you're talking 20, 25%. That was the original idea. And then they progressed that to having savings products, including the new help to save product that the government's launched with the first ever company to be able to do that through payroll deduction. And in time, we'll obviously add more products. But essentially, the role that I have is whether it's producing content in-house or whether it's syndicating content from other good people, and you know, no one's got a monopoly on how to create good financial education content or financial engagement content. My job is to source and produce and pull together good material to support employees so that we can get them out of debt, into savings, and becoming financially independent, and also financially well, so that they are not worrying about money and that they have choices. So give an example. When someone has finished repaying a loan directly from the salary, let's say they work for a big retailer and they've been paying £100 a month, we will contact them just before the end of that loan comes up and say, now, why don't you direct that money into the savings account? 
we have a savings account. Why don't you direct that? You can earn yourself, you know, sort of 1% a year interest, but it's not the interest. It's the building an emergency fund or building resilience. And then when you've built that up, why don't you direct that into perhaps your share say scheme or something else? Now we don't give advice. We're trying to really make it super easy for automization and from regular engagement with people to be better with money, whatever that means to them. And presumably some of that is financial education and some of the positive stuff. You mentioned emergency funds, you know, there's huge well-being that we can get from emergency funds. So there's presumably some education needed to, to employees as well as you're doing this. Yeah, well, we also do live events. I focus on the whole of the whole idea of what a good life looks like for you and the role of money in achieving it. And as you know, you know, the thing is external validation from people by buying stuff or earning money is, is a loser's game. Now, I'm not saying don't be successful and don't be entrepreneurial and don't, you know, take chances and don't ask for people to sort of get people's feedback. But if you're living your life in other people's value set, you're, you're destined to lose. So when I do the live events, I'm really making people think. And, that, and that's important because essentially people have never thought about the role of money in their life. So when I talk about your money story coming from your childhood, and, and you know, this is why Tim Kessler's talking about people who haven't had their needs met, that's the first time they've ever realized that. And when you talk about someone having two financial personalities and they're at battle with each other, they kind of know it, but no one's ever articulated it. And when you talk about a trauma happening in your life, everything can be going right, but something happens that you didn't or can't control. You know, your marriage falls apart for no fault of your own, or you've got a serious health issue or something happens and it just blows you off course and it really affects you. And they've never really had anyone articulate that. And that's, it's really trying to break that taboo. So I suppose just carrying on from that, we, we decided that there are apps out there, there are software that you can do to run your money, there are loads of employers who've got loads of benefits on their portal, but the employees aren't engaging with it because they're frightened about dealing with money and they're not always aware of the pervasive effect of marketing and peer pressure and just consumer culture. And so as well as trying to get into the narrative of what's the role of money, and are you actually being intentional about the role of money in a non-guilty way, but you know, really being focused, what's the role of it in your life? What we wanted to do is give people in a kind of gamified way, a really simple way of having a quick blood pressure test, but in a money sense. They don't have to load all their details, don't have to tell us who they are. We developed the financial fitness score to be basically a, a way of people answering a small number of behavioral questions uh, to get a score of between one to five. So one being completely out of control and can't make ends meet, all the way to five, financial freedom, you've got loads of choices. And so we studied 10,000 people who are cross-representative of the UK employee workforce across 25 different sectors. And we found that the average score was 3.1 in the UK. We developed the tool so that anyone can do the financial fitness score by going to the Salary Finance website, so it's salaryfinance.com, and anyone can do that score by answering subjective questions. So it's not designed to be the big deep dive of your finances and your budget and everything, but it's you answering the questions, and it will give you a score. So not only will it enable you to compare yourself to the national average, but you can also do the score again in the future, and it could change in three months' time. You know, because three months is a long time in someone's finances. You know, you could suddenly have a bonus or have a pay rise or lose your job or whatever. So the idea was to give people really quick, how am I doing and how am I doing relative to everyone else and how am I doing relative to three, four months ago or a year ago? So let me ask a question about that then, Jason, because if you're doing an assessment of your finances, I can't see how you could get away from the kind of it depends 
<laughs> kind of answer. And it depends on what matters to you in life. So my friend Dan from the village I grew up in in Somerset has never had any money and never wanted any money. Never had a loan, never had a mortgage, always rented and is happy because he just doesn't want to get involved with money. Whereas I know plenty of other people for whom they're also never happy <laughs> because they're always trying to accumulate more money and never getting to where they want to be. So an assessment of their finances now, they could have exactly the same finances, but one might be happy and one might be unhappy. So how does your score take into account somebody's desires and dreams and et cetera? Well, as I said to you, it's not a deep dive spreadsheet analysis and stress testing under star. It's not that sophisticated because that's not what most people need. The questions in there, and, and I would commend you to do it yourself. If you I do it, that's what I want to know. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um, I, I featured it in my Financial Times article. You know, I write an, uh, an article for the Financial Times every month, and I featured that uh, the tool, and it was online before the printed edition last weekend. And the reader comments below, people were taking the score. One guy said, he said, I am financially independent under any measure, and I can't get the score above 4.2. And that is because... It's, it's as much about how you feel about the money and how secure you feel, as well as answering questions like, in the last month, I've had to dip into savings to meet costs, or, or I'm, you know, I'm regularly overdrawing at the bank, or whatever the question is. You know, there are, so there are some specific what has happened in the last month or in the last week, and then there are some attitudinal ones. So your friend who doesn't spend a lot probably would end up with a very high score. Because it's not how much you're spending in your lifestyle, it's is it all in proportion to your resources? And is it giving you a source of stress and worry, or is it actually giving you a sense of liberation? So it's not, the score is not how well you've done in life when it comes to money, it's, it's what's the role of money in your life, and is it helping you or hindering you? And presumably you make a, a few judgments like for example, unsecured debt that you're not paying anything off is probably a bad place to be. Yeah, but it's not so much the debt itself. It's yeah, are you managing yeah. to meet your obligations? So we're not making big judgments. And we've got to remember, you're giving someone a score that's going to be reasonably meaningful to do three things. One, okay, I've got some room for maneuver. I'm at a three or I'm at a 2.5 or whatever the number is. And I do feel a bit stressed and I do feel like I'm a, a lot of people feel sort of a sense of obligation. They feel like they should do better, but it's not enough pain for them yet, right? So if you can tell to them, okay, to increase your score, you could do a handful of things. You could think about doing X, Y, and Z. The second thing is people love to compare themselves to other people. I mean, they just do, even though we, we say don't compare yourself to people for your lifestyle and materialism. But when it comes to this, we took the view that most people uh, need to be motivated if they either think they're doing better or worse than, than the average. And then the third thing, and this is really directed at employers, we can take an aggregate of all the anonymized fitness scores for people in a company. So let's just say two big retailers that are signed up to salary finance uh, in the UK. And we could say to retailer A, the aggregate of your score from 10% of your employees is 3.3. So you're above the national average. But actually your biggest competitor, retailer B, their score is 3.9. So what is it they're doing that you're not doing? And what could you be doing as an employer? And most employers have already got lots of benefits and it may be just tweaking the communications package. It might be doing some sort of in-house talks. It could be making available some remote coaching. It could be just rejigging what they've already got and, and creating some videos on how to or deep dives onto things or making available um, some other material, or it could be just bringing in workshops or anything. You know, the point is, is looking at where, I mean, success leaves clues. Okay. 
So the very, the very most involved employers who take this really seriously is no surprise. Their aggregate financial fitness score of their staff is much higher than employers who think it's not our job to tell people what to do with their money. Okay, well, fair enough. But it is your job to make sure that you can do whatever you can to minimize stress that people have and money is the single biggest stress and you're investing a lot of money in their salary and if they're not productive and they're worrying about where the last penny is coming either because they can't control their spending or because there's other dramas in their life then that's serious it's, it ethically makes sense but it's also economically makes sense why would you not want your employees to be the best they can be all these talks that you've been giving to employees, I assume there's an opportunity for them to ask you questions just for a bit of fun. What are, mm. What's some of the more common questions that you get asked and maybe <laughs> one or two daft ones if you got them? Yeah, um, well, but the typical things, I'm trying to think the, sort of, the more serious ones to start. I've just got divorced from my husband. I'm 28. I'm renting at the moment. Should I buy a house? Well, we all know it depends. And what I did say was, look, when you've gone through a big trauma in your life, the, the last thing you want to do is make a big decision to buy anything anything as long as you've got somewhere over your head the key is to take a breath so that's the typical sort of question but obviously there's so many caveats for that then you get things like the younger people if they've come into some inheritance or they've got a big bonus coming or something you know should they pay off their student debt that sort of stuff uh, they, they just got a thing about it then the, the other ones are where should i invest my money other than the pension I'm saving not to buy a house, uh, but should I put money into stocks and shares? That's another classic one. And if so, you know, where should I put it? That sort of, you know, they feel like they should be doing something. I've had all sorts. And what what, had, what uh, answers do you give them? What on that? No, I say to them, have you got, got an emergency fund that can meet a minimum of three months of your core expenditure? Oh, well, I'm saving for a house. Well, how much is in the money have you saved for your house? I've saved 20,000 for my house. I said, how much deposit do you need? He's about 50. Okay, so keep saving for the house, but you need to have at least three months expenditure as well to me, you know, build that up as well. So if you're saving for a house and or you haven't got an emergency fund, you just keep hammering the cash into that. There's no point in you putting money into stocks and shares ISA, is there? Because if you happen to take your money out and, and young people haven't experienced stock market crashes, you know, big crashes like 2009, year 2000, 87. When, if you have a bad experience when you're young, then you'll never go back to investing. Either you'll be a forced seller because you need the money to buy your house or whatever it is you've got to do, your short-term goal, or you'll get so petrified when you see your statement dropping 30%. And with these new rules, they have to tell you every time your portfolio's dropped 10%. So presumably you could have four or five alerts in a month. I've just said, look, you've got to get the basis right. I'm not saying don't do your pension scheme and other things, but you've got to get cash reserve and your shorter term goals before you worry too much about the long run. But there will be people who disagree, but I can't give these people advice. I mean, I do have some, I've had some madcap ones. I had one guy said, I don't need to worry about saving because I'm it's all in God's hands. And I said, well, and there's I, an element of truth in that, of course. Yeah. Oh, well, and, you know, being an atheist myself, I had to rein myself in. But, you know, I did say to him, well, that's great. I said, but here's the thing is I don't think when you ring up uh, anyone to buy, get your heating oil or uh, pay for your holiday, you can't pay with God. People normally do want some, some folding stuff. So um, that's a great idea. I said, use that as a fallback option rather than the, the first option. God is a security blanket. I also had one lady, she said she was about... She was about 30 and she said, what's the best thing to invest in? And I said to her, um, have you got more money coming in than going out? She said, yes. I said, are you saving 20% of that money in short or long term? She said, no. I said, fine. So what you need to do is either cut your expenditures so you can, or more importantly, you need to increase your income. And I have this concept I say to people, can you afford your job? 
not can you afford your lifestyle can you afford your job because the best thing most people could invest in is themselves and i don't often hear this increasing your future earning capability which is basically and the summation of everything you're going to earn as we know is your human capital your ability to earn money and the only question is how much of it you're going to spend and how much you're going to keep but investing in yourself to make yourself more valuable more employable more useful more adaptable more resilient more flexible that's a really good thing. To, it's better to spend two, three, four thousand quid in, in becoming the best version of you. If it's coaching or if it's more skills or going back to uni or whatever it is, if it's going to help you increase your income and you can learn the rules of road of, of controlling your expenditure, then that's a good thing. And I make a big thing about human capital in all my talks and most of the material. But going back to the fitness score, when we did the analysis, um, we found that the biggest group of people were at two and at four. And here's an interesting thing we found that people who are fours are highly engaged and they will come to talks and they will engage with material and watch videos because they're engaged by definition. But most material is created by fours for fours. Whereas the people who are in the most stressful situation and who need to move the needles are the twos stroke threes. And most material is not aimed at them. And I'm not talking here about the ones that are in very difficult situations. That's citizens advice and debt counseling and so on. But people in twos and threes are in a more precarious, more exposed situation, and they don't have the, the inclination and the get up and go to naturally engage with material. So we decided to create box sets. And we said, you know, forget Game of Thrones. Come and watch Jason explain basic season one, season two, season three. And that's what we've done. But the, the interesting thing was we decided not to do cartoons and we decided not to do sort of big explainer videos. We, we decided just to do talking head videos with words reinforcing and the occasional graphic on screen because it's like me explaining something to you and you can stop it. You can go back over it. And we got the idea from Hegarty Maths and he, he's there on screen and explains how things work. And human beings want to hear from another human being. But because we do it in the studio and we script it and I'm talking to the screen, I'm explaining this to you, we can do it like a curriculum. Life doesn't get any better. You can take your tablet to bed with you and you can binge watch all the seasons of the Learning About Money series. And you can take me to bed with you. <laughs> Absolutely. Can I just, just to finish then? You've yeah. had many, many years of, of financial planning. You've heard the podcast. You know we have our Titus Tomo tip section. Oh, yeah. Do you have any Titus Tomo tips or even sensible little nuggets that our listeners can take away? I'll just share some things, and not for everyone. But, I'm, I mean, I have, uh, for years and years, I, I, I'm not keen on having credit cards that give you benefits for spending but as someone who's very in control of his spending and i use credit cards for the protection online and making big purchases and stuff like that where i can get six weeks where i haven't got to pay it so i can get interest on my own money but if you're in total control of your credit cards and you see them as a utility i love the british airways american express platinum card because what it enables me to you get avios points you know so like air miles same sort of thing but every time you spend £10,000, you get a special voucher from them where you can go for two-for-one travel. So you can, I can take my wife with me to a range of places. We spend on our credit card about £40,000 a year. Now, you know, most people would spend £10,000 a year. So you could at least get every year, if you time it right, you can take your partner with you somewhere for a nice break somewhere, free travel. So that's what's not to like. And all you're doing is recycling existing expenditure you're already, you're already having. That's an example of using what we think is a toxic product, a credit card, but using it cleverly when you've got control of your spending. This is when you make good use of stuff. The other thing I say, just one thing I'll just to finish up on, I look at dealing with your finances and I tell this to everyone I meet that I look at it like a job. 
if you spent half a day every quarter on your finances, and if you could save a thousand pounds a year just by trimming rubbish that you shouldn't be buying or spending a bit better on what you are or saving a bit of tax, whatever it is, that's like only 57 and a half thousand pounds a year because a thousand divided by four is 250 pounds. So if each quarter you could be intentional, it's worth doing. If you save more money, if I saved 3,600 pounds last year. That's like earning 300 and something thousand pounds after tax. Because and this isn't being tight, is it? This isn't having to constantly watch the pennies. This is just taking a few sensible steps. This is just sitting down every quarter or, or you know, one and a half hours every month. And it's the broadband. It's the mobile phone. It's the, can I get a bit better interest? I've just moved my savings and got 0.3 extra interest. That's going to be, you know, a reasonable amount. Not huge amounts, but it still adds up. Oh, I'm changing that thing there. I've, oh, no, I don't think we're going to use those people for our boiler anymore because they're starting to get expensive and we can get it £100 cheaper. So it's, it's that kind of level, like a little checklist. Just go for your little checklist like a pilot does quarter what am i going to look at oh that one's coming up for renewal um, i'm t- going to tell the health insurance company i'm going to move from them oh hang on a minute i can do if i go online and do my health assessment they're going to give me 10 percent off so look at it as like a job so it's being intentional but see it as like overtime see it like a bonus see it like extra money in your pocket and even if you don't want to save it you can take your husband or wife on more trips or you can buy that guitar you've always wanted chris or whatever it is that's fantastic. What a great, you just give me permission to go out and buy another guitar. So I, <laughs> I think we need to stop right at that moment. Jason, Good. thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Lovely. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Wasn't that an interesting chat with Jason Butler? Fascinating. I, I don't know where you find all these guests, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed what, what he said. What I found fascinating was at the start when he talked about why he decided to move on to something different. He'd obviously really thought about what was important to him and what he valued and the reasons why he decided to move on from his and sell his part of the the practice. I thought that was fascinating to start with, a real insight into Mm. what we've been talking about in the retirement series, Mm -hmm. although albeit he's a bit younger than you would necessarily associate with that. But good on him for getting out there and trying to spread the message. It's exactly what we're trying to do here. So all the power to his elbow. Yeah, I, I, I like the there's several comments that he made that I'll just pick up on. One was about the families don't talk enough about money. Uh, we mentioned this, I think, in the last podcast about husband and wife uh, or partners should always come together uh, to a financial planning meeting and sitting around the table. I have this with my daughter. I think I mentioned this on the, on the interview about her uh, pots and how she's going to spend it. And I talk to my kids all the time about this stuff. It's really, really important that, that families sit down together and talk about their finances and the principles of money. I also really liked his point about external validation of others is bad. That If you're living your life based upon other people's values, their views of you, and particularly from a financial perspective, then that is not a way to well-being. And uh, that's something that we covered in the book and we've covered before. But I really, it's a great phrase, you know, be careful of seeking external validation of others. And a couple of points. This is proper producer points. He, he touched on the Tim Kasser episodes and the points he made are absolutely relevant. Um, so I will put a link to those episodes in the show notes. And also the salary finance tool, I'll, I'll put a link in there and, and people might be interested to to play around with that and get a feeling for where they are with their finances and, and happiness and all that sort of thing. And there's a, the, the last point for me is uh, we have our catchphrase that financial planning is really very simple. 
you simply work out what you want from life and spend your money on that. We must have said that hundreds of times on this podcast by now. There's another one that we could now nick from Jason because I love this line. He said, what is the role of money in your life? Is it helping or hindering you? And that's actually really quite a nice summary of financial Yeah, absolutely. It? It's fundamental, isn't it? And if money's not there to help you, if it's getting in the way of your financial well-being, then you need to perhaps think again about how you're doing things. So absolutely fascinating as ever. I don't know who you've got lined up for us next time, Chris, for one of your interviews, but we'll look forward to that very much. And I hope that everybody listening today will go out and tell your friends and that you and your friends will join us for another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>